0: Greetings from the north and welcome to Forum Borealis and another program in the series where we bring a critical light to the shadows of academia. Today's guest is an optimal example to illustrate this crisis as the fundamentalistic faith-based materialists has no arguments against his hard evidence, which leaves them no option but to resort to anti-scientific logical fallacies Which is so typical for all bigots, fanatics and extremists when their bubble bursts. The guest I'm speaking of is of course the forbidden archaeologist Dr. Michael Cremo, who has accumulated a monumental amount of evidence for extreme human antiquity, proving that the age of our human race is far older than what mainstream textbooks wants us to believe. His earth-shattering discoveries has crushed the very foundation of the mainstream version of evolutionary theory, so no wonder he's been deemed a dangerous man (laughs) and met with such arguments as I haven't read your book because I know it's full of errors, hoaxes and illusions. Indeed, he can share with us many experiences, insights and events from his career that can clarify our understanding of the corruption and collapse in the soft sciences of, especially, archaeology and anthropology. His findings are tremendously important in order to uncover the lost ages of human civilization. Cremo is a research associate in history of archaeology, an honorary doctor, a columnist, best-selling author and member of several worldwide academic congresses, associations and societies where he's published and got peer-reviewed many papers on the extreme human antiquity. Fluently in multiple languages, he has meticulously researched and collected, censored and suppressed discoveries all over the world from the beginning of anthropology until today, cross-disciplinary and cultural boundaries, and traveled all over the globe for his research and lecturing at both mainstream and independent and alternative science gatherings. He has written several books on the topics and is featured in innumerable documentaries and media appearances and is frequently interviewed in journals, TV, radio, podcast, and film with his typical sober and sincere presentations. Today he joins us to discuss some of the challenges, obstacles and sabotage he's met in the field as well as the positive and encouraging reception and shares with us his views on the current state of academia and offer perspectives on its improvement. This chat is based mainly upon his three books, The Forbidden Archaeologist, Forbidden Archaeology's Impact and My Science, My Religion. Welcome back to Forum Borealis, Michael.
1: Hello, Al. Good
0: to be back. Ah, Great to have you back. Now, today I'm having you on for another kind of approach than we did last time. Last time we had you on was one of our early interviews. 50,000 people have checked it out. Okay. recommend everybody to go check it out. It's called The Lost Age of Mankind. And we discussed... I mean, there's so much to, to discuss. We just scratched the surface of what you cover in probably your most famous book, the, the one I have of you, which actually exists in two, with two titles. One is Forbidden Archaeology and the other one is The Hidden History of the Human Race that you did with Dr. Thompson. Yes. And I guess the difference between those two books are that one is, f- is an uh, abbreviation of the other one
1: that that's right. Uh the book Forbidden Archaeology is about 900 pages long and we also brought it out in a shorter edition, The Hidden History of the Human Race, about 300 pages. Right.
0: And and what you removed was just the boring stuff, right?
1: <laughs> well, it's all all the same cases, but uh all the same information is there, but yeah, you know, presented in just a, a briefer a briefer way.
0: Presumably less technical.
1: Uh, also a little less technical.
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, great. So today I was thinking we could talk about the impact that the book had and, you know, the knowledge filtration, how academia deals with it. Okay. Because we have our series where we're going to talk with different people like yourself, where we're going to get people to share how, you know, what battle they have with academia. Because most people think that academia is some sort of saintly, objective, uh, truth-seeking court, almost. So it's important that people understand, you know, it's human like everything else. Yeah. Oh, oh by the way, I, I've been meaning to ask you about Dr. Thompson, your your co-author for those Forbidden Archaeology books. Um, I mean, he passed away fairly early, I say. Uh-huh. Um, but what was his contribution to that book? How did you guys work together with that important book?
1: Well, um... One thing to understand is that both Richard Thompson and I are part of the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. We both had the same guru from India, and we, as part of our relationship, you know, we studied the ancient Sanskrit writings of India. And Richard Thompson was very interested in the relationship of the teachings of the Vedic literature of India with the findings of modern science, Mm. because in some ways they're similar and in some ways they're different. So uh, we were working together on these questions. And we made a small publication called Origins, in which we uh, explained several topics in light of ancient India's Vedic wisdom. One was the origin of the universe, the other was the origin of life. Mm -hmm. The other topic we dealt with was the nature of consciousness and mind, and uh, another topic that we dealt with in that small publication was human origins and antiquity. So after we put out that small publication, we decided to turn each part of that smaller publication into a book. and. I was given by Richard Thompson the topic of human origins and antiquity. Hmm. So, you could say he was like my mentor in this whole field of integrating the insights of the Vedic teachings with modern scientific findings. And... Uh, so when I received that topic from him, human origins and antiquity, I first of all considered what the Vedic teachings were, and they say the the ancient Sanskrit writings of India, in common with many of the world's ancient wisdom traditions, say that humans like us have been present on on earth for many millions of years going all the way back to the very beginnings of the history of life on earth so that's what the vedic teachings say and i wondered is there any scientific evidence to support that idea Mm. so If you look in the current textbooks of archaeology and history and things like that, you won't find any such evidence. Modern science believes that the first humans like us appeared less than 200,000 years ago. So I decided to look beyond the textbooks. I, I began to look into the... Archaeological literature from the time of Charles Darwin in the mid nineteenth century in right. and, and, and many different languages and when I was looking in these uh, reports, you know I found many discoveries by archaeologists, geologists, paleontologists, and other scientists who were digging into the earth who were finding human bones, human artifacts, human footprints going back many millions of years. So the, the research into the whole history of archaeology took me about eight years, and I consulted regularly with uh, Dr. Thompson about this uh, research that I was doing, and uh, then I wrote a first draft of the book Forbidden Archaeology and he reviewed it and uh, I I made some revisions based on his input and then the book was finally published in 1993. The research for it started in 1984 basically. Hmm. So he once told me that Uh, My work on the book was like that of a graduate student writing a doctoral thesis with him as the thesis advisor. So, right but but his
0: his ed- education uh, wasn't that in uh, physics or something mathematics mathematics right he, right he,
1: he got a phd in mathematics from cornell university in the united states and right. Yeah, you know, mathematics is like the language of most of the sciences. So it gives you access good, yeah. to physics, chemistry, biology, because mm-hmm. it's the basic language of uh, the sciences.
0: I'd go further. I'd say it's the basic design of reality. If you think that uh, about everything is vibration, right, and uh, sure, uh, anything can be uh, expressed as numbers. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's probably the most relevant all around uh, expertise you can have. Yeah.
1: Well, our whole, our whole digital world is based on the fact (laughs) that everything can be expressed ultimately as a series of zeros and ones. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Which is, which is kind
0: of poor compared to reality where in reality we have a seven degree. You know, vibrations can be reduced to seven steps or twelve, if you like, five half tones, seven whole tones. Yes. So that dual thing—I discuss this with other people when they try to replicate, when they try to create so-called artificial intelligence. They are doing the mistake of having a binary uh, basics. So uh, that's doomed to fail, if you ask me. But
1: uh, well, yeah, there's but that's another matter. Yeah, of course. Both Richard Thompson and I were of the opinion that you can't really reduce everything to mathematically expressible concepts. There's things connected with the phenomenon of consciousness that go way beyond that. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, Uh,
0: especially if you're talking about the origin of consciousness and, and, and the nature of consciousness and such but um as far as express consciousness goes uh, it has to be expressed through the senses and everything in the senses can be measured so to speak so so yeah i, I guess maybe we're in an agreement there but but this is a philosophical concept for another time okay. i want to say before we move on um uh, that i did meet you briefly in norway when you had a lecture there very interesting couple years ago couple of years ago it was so nice to meet you because full disclosure i tell you that not that i had a big preconceived notions but i expected you to be very academic okay Because you sound uh pretty academic i have to say uh, which which is a good thing in this setting <sighs> But you told us about, about your journey, which uh, you also did in a lecture. So you're in a spiritual group today and you've been, you know, you went through the hippie thing and all that. And I myself have had uh, a lifetime of uh, searching and I met very many bright people. Wonderful. And one thing that I've noticed as a pattern is that if someone that I define, I perceive to be you know, somewhat enlightened or present or grounded. Right. It's very hard to put your finger on what it is that you can tell it's more a feeling it's more the feeling of a presence and i have to say michael you had a very powerful presence that's how i perceived it and it w- it wasn't placebo because i didn't expect it <laughs> <laughs> but for all your listeners out there if you ever meet michael you'll be aware that he has he has a very sharp eyes and a very pleasant and powerful aura. So I don't know if you are even aware of this, Michael... (laughs) But that's how you come, come through. Well,
1: I, I'm aware that I have different effects on different classes of people. I, I, I am. Right. But I did enjoy my one and only visit to Norway. It was, uh, it was a a good time, a, a good time of year. Yeah. Beautiful place, huh? Eh? Yeah. What was that the name of that village where I gave the talk? I forget oh, the yeah. name. It's on the Helsing fjord i think
0: i, I forgot too but uh, it's it's not far from bergen an hour
1: or two yeah bergen is where i flew into and yeah about, you know a couple hours by car from bergen uh, to that village where hmm. we had the festival and the talk and all of that it was a good time of year i think it was the summer time so, yeah, did,
0: did you get to see any nature while you were there?
1: Yeah, we did go on some expeditions. Great. Great. So I
0: mentioned, you know, the book Forbidden Archaeology. Now, when I had you on the last time and we were trying to plug that event, but it was so close to the event that I, I, I don't think we reached many people. But anyway, when you, I had you on, you told me that you were working on a follow up to Forbidden Archaeology has that follow up manifested
1: yet? Not not yet I'm still working on it the, you know, the first book Forbidden Archaeology took me about 8 years of research and writing I, I wish I were one of these more prolific authors that could come out with <laughs> yeah. a book a year and you know over time they just have dozens and dozens of books but I'm I'm not like that. I'm probably more like uh, one of these uh, rock bands. They put out an album, and then it's many years before another one comes out. But (laughs) because I find I want to be uh, careful with the research that I'm doing on these cases of archaeological evidence for extreme human antiquity. But I am working on it. I would say it's about two-thirds finished now hmm. I would hope within the next one or two years the complete manuscript will be ready for publication so we'll just see how it goes but I'll I'll know when it's ready
0: hmm. oh, we'll have you back then um, when it's out again uh, but that's great. Wish you very luck with that book, Thank you. Uh, and there will be lots of new cases, I guess, that didn't make it to the first book, right?
1: Right. Well, it's been a long time since the first book came out, so there's uh, a lot of new things that have come to my attention, yeah. and also some updates on, yeah, you know, some of the cases that were included in Forbidden Archaeology. Yeah. That's great. So we'll, we'll
0: take that on later. But, but, uh, but,
1: but, yeah. but one thing I do, I write a regular column for Atlantis Rising magazine. Uh, the name of the column is called The Forbidden Archaeologist. So in that way, sometimes uh, material that I'm researching for the book, sometimes I uh, will put out in those columns in a as a kind of a test you could say
0: hmm. And 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 you even have uh, many of those columns collected together in a book, that's uh, many of those teasers,
1: right? And that's called... Uh, the Forbidden Archaeologist, after the name of the column. That's a, a, a collection of uh, 50 of those columns from Atlantis Rising magazine. And they're actually a very good introduction to my work mm. for people who aren't already familiar with it, because... All of the articles are short. They're easy to read. They deal with a particular topic. They don't have to be read in any particular order. You know, you, know, if you, you can just read one of them in a few minutes and get an idea of the kinds of cases that I'm dealing with.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the table of contents here, and I can see even from the titles that there's some stuff relative uh, – relevant uh, for today's talk. For instance, uh, the second one is called The China Connection, Conspiracy, Archaeology, and the Rockefeller Foundation. <laughs> I'll make sure to ask you about that later. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, um, so I'm thinking, I haven't read the book Forbidden Archaeologist. Uh, I, I'm going to get it, but I haven't done it yet. But I'm thinking that probably would be relevant today, even though it's uh, kind of in the same gate as uh, Forbidden Archaeology.
1: Yeah, it's of course, each column is about 1,500 words. So it's uh, it's the same topic, but in short, easy-to-read pieces, whereas the the 900-page book, you know, gets into a lot of detail sometimes, so.
0: And what about My Science, My Religion? Is that relevant, you think, to
1: the topic in in question? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Uh, That book is a collection of 24 papers that I've presented on my work at mainstream science conferences, meetings of the World Archaeological Congress, the European Association of Archaeologists. So, right. uh, yeah, it, it's it's relevant. Mm. Okay, so I guess those
0: will be the basis for the talk. Then we'll we'll uh, go a little into those books. Yeah. And also, especially the one called Forbidden Archaeology's Impact. Yeah. That book, for sure. So. Right. Now, today, I alluded in the beginning that this is for a different series. We have a series called. Uh, uh, I think we called it the crisis of academia and uh, it's it 's not an attack on science it 's rather a defense actually of of true science a uh, defense against the those who try to hijack it either deliberately or inadvertently with their biases. And we'll discuss some of that stuff today because sure. I think it's important for you guys who are out there in the front line and, and try to, you know, create bigger space for truth, uh, that people realize what have to deal with. And in fact, in your case, uh, you even made a book for that. And I'm referring to the one called Forbidden Archaeology's Impact.
1: Yeah. Uh, after the book Forbidden Archaeology came out, people would ask me, well, What's been the reaction, you know, from the scientific world to your work? What kind of responses are you getting? So, to to answer that question, you know, I put together that book, *Forbidden Archaeology's Impact*, in which I included all the responses, the published responses that came from scientists. Some of them quite negative, some a little more positive. Uh, Mm. But I wanted to give people uh, the full range of responses, and then, of course, I included my replies, my correspondence with uh, scientists and other researchers, just to give people an idea of what it's like to do this kind of of work, Mm. you know, to get some experience of the full range of reactions to it. So, yeah, that's that book, Forbidden Archaeology's Impact.
0: And it's such a broad number of people in the correspondence section. I'll I'll mention some names. We have Alan Alford, of course, famous for being one of the detractors of Sitchin we have uh, dr henry bauer he's he's rather old but i want to get him on this show he he's been on a, sh- a friend of our shows called skeptical uh, so he's he's a very important figure in this field when it comes to the science criticism right you have people like of course dr robert Schock that we've had on this show too you have even <laughs> even richard leakey You've been talking with, we have Colin Wilson, Dr. Donald Tyler, Ingo Swan, many known names here. So, uh, it's a whole host. But I, I want to ask you, for people who have this naive, old uh, uh, notion that science is unbiased, objective, truth-seeking, what uh, experiences can you share with us to make us understand better the process that these things has to go through and and how human even even science is at the end of the day,
1: yeah, um uh, well, this is something that it's it's not just that I'm saying it, and you're saying it. Uh, But it's something that historians of science and philosophers of science have understood for a long time, namely that theoretical preconceptions can influence how scientists react to different kinds of evidence that come to their attention. And this was expressed by Dr. Thomas Kuhn in a famous book that he wrote called The Structure of scientific revolutions, and there he Mm. introduced what he called paradigm and the concept of paradigm shifting. A paradigm is a collection of beliefs and methods and conclusions that govern how a scientific discipline works. You know, for example, in biology today, the Darwinian theory of evolution functions as a paradigm, and scientists carry out their research within the boundaries of that paradigm. But sometimes, uh, Kuhn pointed out in his famous book, uh, scientists encounter what they call anomalies, things that don't fit within the paradigm mm. and the tendency is when they encounter this kind of evidence that really doesn't fit into their paradigm into their conceptual framework you know that they're mm. operating on they tend to dismiss it forget it uh sometimes actively suppress it so what I've showed in my work is that this process operates in archaeology. Uh, I call it a process of knowledge filtration, and it hmm. and it can manifest in many different ways. Uh, you know, for example, there's the case of the California gold mine discoveries, which we may have talked about the first time we spoke, but I'll just briefly review that. Uh, in, Mm In the 19th century, gold was discovered in California. Miners went there to get it. They were digging tunnels into the sides of mountains, like Table Mountain in the Sierra Nevada Mountains of California. And deep inside their tunnels, they were finding human bones and human artifacts. So these discoveries came to the attention of Dr. J.D. Whitney, who was the chief government geologist of California. And he conducted his own investigations. He collected the artifacts. He visited the sites. He he wrote a, a, a massive book about them that was published by Harvard University. And what makes these discoveries of human bones and human artifacts in the California gold mines so interesting to me is that modern geologists tell us that the layers of rock in which these objects were found, solidly embedded, were, are, are over 50 million years old. So we could ask, well, why don't we uh, hear about these things in the textbooks today? And that's because of what I call a process of knowledge filtration that operates in the world of science. You know, there was a a contemporary of Dr. Whitney, an anthropologist named William Holmes, who worked at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, DC. And he said if Dr. Whitney had understood the theory of human evolution, he wouldn't have come to those conclusions despite the opposing mm-hmm. array of facts with which he was confronted. In other words, if the facts did not support the theory, the facts had to be suppressed, and they were I mean, you could say, I mean, many people have the idea well, yeah, if some new facts come in, then you modify the theory, but it it, it doesn't always work like that. They don't even get in, they don't even have a process to get them in anymore. Right. It's amazing. And sometimes, you know, I have my own personal experiences with this knowledge filtration process. You know, I, I get invitations to speak at universities all over the world. And mm. you know, that that's a good thing, but sometimes there's resistance. I I remember once a few years ago I was invited to speak at the University of Aarhus. In Denmark.
0: Oh, yeah. Hmm.
1: And I I gave two lectures there, but uh, many of the faculty members, the professors at the university, were very upset that I had been invited to speak (laughs) there. And so they protested. Hmm. They would have liked to have gotten those lectures canceled. Uh, Of course, they weren't able to do that. But uh, But hang on, hang on. Did they think
0: you were a creationist or something? I mean, where did all these strong feelings come from? Because I doubt they knew your work. They read your books or anything. So what was the bias rumor thing that activated them?
1: Well, uh, of course, if you Google my name, a lot of things will come up. If you Google Michael Cremo, if you search the web for michael cremo you're going to get a a a lot of information
0: yeah but i don't don't think they google everyone who comes to there has to be had some kind of slander some kind of rumor like this creationist is going to speak or something like that
1: maybe maybe like that i think the idea Hmm. was that i was presenting information there were actually there was a a newspaper article that came out a big headline in oh, in the right. danish newspaper in aarhus you know the big the yeah. biggest newspaper in aarhus mm. and the headline was i'm translating uh, is this man dangerous <laughs> you know and yeah. uh, er, er, I, I forget wow. how to say it in Danish, but uh, er dies man Ferlich.
0: A den man fairly? <laughs> yeah,
1: that, yeah, that's how they would ever say it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they had interviewed some archaeologists at the university, and they were very upset. But they, they were – it was actually quite a, a positive article. It's like you were saying, I'm a human being. You know, hmm. sometimes, uh, you know, if you just hear me speak in an academic context. You might have one picture of of who I am and what I'm like. But Mm -hmm. you know, the, the reporters actually came to the place in Aarhus where I was staying with some friends. And they interviewed me, and we had a, a good time, and they presented things very fairly in the newspaper. But I, I would say they object uh, to me f- for two reasons. First of all, because I'm contradicting the dominant paradigm of human evolution. That I'm contradicting the current dominant understanding of human origins and antiquity. So that's one reason I'm known for that. And the second reason is I'm doing it from a spiritual perspective. In other words, yeah. I'm, I'm very open that my work is inspired by my studies in the ancient Sanskrit writings of India. Now, if I go to a university or I go to a scientific conference, I don't expect anyone to accept a statement from the Vedic literature as evidence. But what I can mm. do is say, if what the Vedic literature tells us About human origins and antiquity is true, then we should expect to find reports of scientists discovering human bones, human artifacts, and human footprints far older than the current paradigm in archaeology allows. And I can show that indeed there are such reports of discoveries like that many of them, and I think it's significant. So that's one reason why they object, because I'm contradicting what they are writing in their textbooks and what they are teaching Mm. their students at the university. The second reason they object is, is as I said, because I'm doing it from a spiritual perspective, and they don't like that at all. So, no. I think for those two reasons.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's the materialist bias. Uh, I mean, there is um, uh, this political thinker in America called Ron Paul. He, he has a quote that uh, truth is treason in the empire of lies. And uh, when you have a dictatorship, truth becomes treasonous. And that applies not only in politics, it does... Indeed, apply in academia, and for some reason, in particular, when it comes to anthropology and archaeology, and especially Egyptology. Yeah, that's those disciplines have it's like they have taken an LSD trip and they've fared along on their own little route far away from science (laughs) give me hard science any time of the day we can discuss the problems there too but these people have hijacked these soft sciences which doesn't rely on hard facts which means that they are in my opinion they are sensitive to being hijacked by ideologies by certain paradigms Precisely because they don't have to touch base with what can be measured objectively. And so when these people who who, uh, control the Egyptology, Anthropology, Archaeology disciplines, when they have taken a a detour away from reality, then... um, uh, the 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 subject itself becomes so incredibly corrupt and degenerated and if someone like you comes along uh, pointing to the anomalies that is treason you are dangerous they are very right you are dangerous to their snowflake paradigms
1: yeah there there was actually uh an author in Britain. i think her name is karen smith she put together a book called the dangerous man and she <laughs> interviewed different researchers in what we might call the alternative science field including myself i was very happy to be included in the book as one of her dangerous her dangerous <laughs> men and who, i re- who were the other what company were you in uh I I'd, I'd have to get the book and and oh, I see. Look at I I've got it just here just a uh, one second let's see. Cause
0: it's telling what company they put you together in. I mean maybe most of them are, are good guys but uh, Okay,
1: her name the author of the book is Karen Sawyer. And let's see mm-hmm. I'm going to look up in here and see who she's got mm-hmm. along with me have got to get the table of, yeah. uh, oh, some very, uh, well, uh, Bruce Lipton. Oh, uh, that's great company. Nick Clements, mm-hmm. Steve Taylor. Mm. Uh, let's see if there's some famous names in here. Michael Tsarion. Right. Ralph Ellis.
0: Okay, sounds like a very diverse group of people. But yeah, no, uh, it is
1: a, a very Paul Levy, Jerry Ravel, Alan Cantwell, hmm. Jonathan uh-huh. Jonathan Goldman, hmm. a lot of different different research. So not just
0: anthropology and archaeology. No, no,
1: no, no, no. All kinds of fields.
0: Which also is a, uh, goes for the people you've been corresponding with. Um, I, I'd be—I haven't read the book um, "Forbidden Archaeology's Impact," but like I said, I'm going to get it. But I'm just curious. This is random. There's so many people. It's, it's sixty-one people you've been corresponding with, or, or that you've been relating in the book. But I want to ask you: What, what did um, Doctor Bauer have to say?
1: Um, I'd have to look. Does it say what page he's on?
0: Um doesn't say the page. Only chapter 4, number 5, Select the correspondence. Because I, I'm guessing he's supportive of your... Because he's very concerned about how to preserve the paradigm-changing process of science. And he's pointed out different stuff that's hindering that change, not just the knowledge filtration which you pointed out, but also all sorts of other stuff, like for instance, corruption, conspiracy, and, uh, you know, power influence, stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: I'm, I'm guessing he was positive. Okay, let's see. Like I said, there was a lot of people I was corresponding with. Yeah. But I think I've I'm finding what, what we wrote about. Oh, oh he yeah, this yeah, he, he wrote to me or he wrote to our, our group. I would appreciate receiving a copy of Forbidden Archaeology by Cremo and Thompson, which has been suggested for review by the Journal of Scientific Exploration. That's his mm. uh, journal. And he says, uh, the journal has been published by the Society for Scientific Exploration since 1987. We review books on the nature of science and books that describe current scientific knowledge as well as works on unorthodox scientific claims so he's hmm. he, he somehow or other he'd heard about our book forbidden archaeology and uh so we sent it to him uh i don't know whether they reviewed it or not by the, at the time uh this book forbidden archaeology's impact was published uh they hadn't reviewed it yet but maybe they eventually hmm. did but yeah we did send uh Dr. Henry Bauer that uh, a copy of the book for review in his journal Tell you what, if I get him
0: on, uh, which we want to I'm going to ask him if he read that book, he he will probably remember it (laughs) because it's a very special book but is there any of these people you correspond with you can highlight for us that goes to illustrate the problem of academia?
1: Well, I think what we have to do is, first of all, look at the reviews of forbidden archaeology that were published in the professional scientific journals. There were yeah, let's do many, that. many of them. So some of them were very harshly negative. Mm. And, I mean, basically, you know, when I look at, you know, the scientific world and Think about the reactions to forbidden archaeology. Uh, the the scientists who've responded break down into three basic groups. Mm-hmm. One of them, one of them, I call the fundamentalist materialist, and right. these are scientists who are supporters of the current dominant theories. In, uh, about human origins and antiquity, which are very materialistic and uh, you know based more or less on the Darwinian theory of evolution, with humans like us appearing fairly recently, less than uh, 200,000 years ago. Mm. So they're supporters of those kinds of ideas, not for strictly scientific reasons, but for more ideological reasons you know that they they want to define human existence in a way that excludes any concept of some higher nature you know, they, they want to keep things like that for ideological reasons, and therefore... Yeah,
0: yeah they are gatekeepers, basically. They are the ones who have hijacked right. the objective tool of science and made it some kind of materialist weapon. Yeah,
1: I agree. Sometimes people call that scientism. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's an excellent term. Um.
1: Uh, but that's one group then there's another group who are supporters of the current theories and paradigms but for more or less scientific reasons you know which means they're willing to consider alternatives and right. It's scientists in that group who will sometimes say some positive things about my work. They may not agree with every aspect of it, but they think, yes, this should be heard. This is valuable. We should take it into account. And then there's.
0: Hang on, hang on. Let me guess that Doctor Shock, Robert Shock, was one of those.
1: Yeah, and uh, another one of those would be, uh, you know, there was a historian of 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 science, uh, David Oldroyd. You know, very prominent British. I think he lives in Australia now, though, Mm. uh, historian of science, and one of his graduate students wrote a review of forbidden archaeology in uh, trying to remember the name of the journal that they wrote it in, uh, Social Studies of Science. And Mm. what they said, they asked a question, it wasn't yeah, you know, just a, a short book review. It was actually a twenty page article about forbidden archaeology in an wow. academic journal. And wow. they They asked a question. They said, Does forbidden archaeology make any contribution to the discipline of paleoanthropology? You know, that's the science of human origins and antiquity. Mm. And they said, Our answer is yes for two reasons. The first reason they gave is that. As professional historians of science, they thought nobody had gone as deeply into the history of archaeology as Richard Thompson and I did in the book mm. Forbidden Archaeology. So they thought that was a contribution, that we really explored in depth the whole history of archaeology. And they mentioned that, you know, when they would read, uh, our book, they would find things in it that simply were not at all mentioned in Hmm. the kinds of academic histories of archaeology that were being published by scholars and scientists. So they thought that was a contribution, that we'd gone into the history of the discipline in such depth and found all these cases Hmm. that are just absent. From other histories. It's a good point. And, and the second reason they thought we had made a good contribution with our book was that it raised, in their words, important questions about the nature of scientific truth claims. In other nice. words, scientists will claim uh, a certain level of certainty about their particular theories and ideas. You know, some theories they will regard as, well, not very certain, but their judgment about their theory about human origins and antiquity, they regard as practically absolutely certain. In, In other words, they attach a very high degree of certainty to their truth claims about, human origins and antiquity. And uh, Dr. Oldroyd and his uh, graduate student Joe Wodak said in their review that we had Problematized attaching that level of certainty to the current ideas about how old the human species is. They thought we had mm. done a good, you know, we presented evidence that called into question the idea that humans like us appeared only fairly recently on this planet. So that was positive. Now, I'm not saying they agreed with everything that we said, but It was some positive recognition of a contribution that we made to the discipline of archaeology. Absolutely.
0: I'd say they had a decent take on it this is a real scientific attitude that you absorb the info even if it contradicts or disagrees and then you i mean those two statements are really understatements but at least they did give that credit which it should be before you mentioned the third group of people who received your book could you also give an example of the first group you t- you told us about those uh, fundamentalists? How did they
1: describe it well, for example, Richard Leakey wrote me a letter. you know I sent him a copy of the book because I mentioned him in it. I mentioned some of uh, his discoveries yeah. you know he He was of course the son of Lewis uh, and Mary Leakey. He was a prominent archaeologist in his own right. And he wrote back to me, "Your book is pure humbug. Nobody would take it seriously, but a fool, (laughs) you know." Or
0: very emotional. Or
1: Dr. Matt Cartmill. He wrote in the American Journal of Physical Anthropology, "You know, this is just Hinduoid creationist drivel." And I and I actually use those things as examples of the process of knowledge filtration and operation, you know, that's what you do. You don't really address the facts. You don't address the evidence. You just call the author bad names, Hmm. you know, like casting a spell, you know, that if you call him this bad name, then nobody will listen to him. But but it actually works to a certain sure, sure. degree.
0: It works um, among their followers because uh, I've seen this in action. As soon as an unknown name is smeared among the sheeple, the, the, the congregation of the skeptics and the materialists, then he's, he or she is on the naughty list. And as soon as you bring that name up, they will, oh, yeah, but that's that person. Uh, he was debunked. And now he's, he's just – and then they come with ad hominem, guilty by association, you know, all these logical fallacies. So it kind of works yes. in the, among their religious followers because that's basically what they are. They are faith-based followers.
1: But uh, what it also does – I mean, one thing, you know, we did with the book The Hidden History of the Human Race – which is kind of like the popular edition of forbidden archaeology, is we put on the cover of it the, these negative statements and also some of the positive <laughs> statements, you know, like right. that were made by other scientists. And what it indicated to people is this is something that is causing controversy, and that mm. attracts. Uh, some people they wonder, well, why, why is somebody getting so upset about mm. what these people, what these authors are saying in their book? Why are they so upset, and why aren't they being more reasonable like some of the other scientists? Because we put both the positive and the negative statements. Right. So, it's a
0: brilliant, it's a brilliant ad tactic. That's for sure. Yeah. So actually,
1: they're <laughs> just helping to sell the book and make it more widely known. Hmm. But, but as you say, I think uh, in that the, the ones in that category, what they're trying basically to do is keep their base of support from hmm. defecting. Mm. You know, holding the line, mm. but I I don't think that it ultimately will work because there are just so many ways to communicate these days. People get their information from all kinds of sources, mm. and it's becoming more and more difficult for them. I think.
0: Oh, indeed, that's why we have these areas because uh, it's now possible people are awake enough and people are seeking enough and people have the means to get the information so so this is a small contribution in that and 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 your work and, and many others too now
1: let's get to the third kind of people in the field Okay, the first type of person is the fundamentalist materialist who are just opposed to the kind of thing that I do Mm -hmm. for more ideological reasons than purely scientific reasons. The second group they may be supporters of the current theories but they're open minded they're not ideologically committed to them they're willing to consider alternatives and they will acknowledge positive aspects of my work right. now the third the third group is much smaller and that's people who in the scientific world who actually agree with me. And oftentimes such people, they find themselves become victims of the system of which they're part. Mm. I mean, a a classic case was uh, the case of the geologist Virginia Steen McIntyre. She had gone down in the 1970s to an archaeological site in Mexico called Huayat Laco, and she and her colleagues had been called down there to date the site. Some archaeologists had found human artifacts in different layers of rock in their excavations there, and they wanted to know how old they were. So Virginia Steen McIntyre and her colleagues used several different scientific methods to date the site. And they came up with an age of 300,000 years. But the... That's that's 100,000 too much to be allowed. Anywhere in the world, Hmm. but especially in North America, because the current dominant idea among archaeologists is there are no humans in North America until about 20 or maximum 30,000 years ago. So mm. to kind of have this evidence being dated at 300,000 years was kind of too much for the archaeologists. So they refused to publish the age for the site given by their own team of geologists so mm. Virginia Steen McIntyre and her colleagues independently published the age for the site but when she did that her career was practically finished she mm. lost a teaching position that she held and uh, you know she was cut off from grant money and you know, all- Cause she she wasn't tenured right no
0: and and she was naive. She believed in oh oh, but these these are facts, so this must be shared.
1: Yeah, that she hmm. just thought she was doing her job as a geologist, a scientist, hmm. and she actually wrote a letter. You know, she was writing to uh, the, one of the editors of the journal that published her report. She said, you know, I I didn't realize how tightly woven into our scientific concepts, the modern evolutionary theory of human origins really is. She said our our work at Hoyat was rejected because it contradicted that theory, period. That's it, you know. Mm. So she she was so she's an example of a scientist in that third category that actually kind of agrees with the kinds of things that I'm saying and has in a sense, also become a victim of the knowledge filtering process themselves.
0: Yeah, but isn't it a fact that if you are active in academia and you do go public with such a view that you are done for? I mean, it's a, I think it's a reason that those who dare do something like that are either tenured Or they are retired. It's the same with whistleblowers, basically.
1: (laughs) Yes. No, you're you're right about that. Yeah, there was another case of uh, someone I knew, John Mack. This is a different field of research, but this field of this process of knowledge filtration operates in a lot of different areas. Mm. You know, he was the head of the psychiatry department at Harvard University Medical School, and he became interested in accounts of UFOs and alien abductions and things like that, and he decided to look into it Mm. as a psychiatrist because the common claim is, that people reporting such things are psychologically disturbed. They have some mental illness. Hmm. So he carefully studied a group of people who had reported such things, and he determined there's no psychosis or neurosis here. They're perfectly healthy from the mental point of view, and their reports should be taken seriously. When he published that, Although he was a tenured professor at Harvard University, his colleagues convened an academic court to get his tenure removed. Now, he successfully fought that, and I actually met him in uh, England. Uh, We were both speaking at a conference uh, that was held in Glastonbury, England, and we had kind of – uh, agreed to stay in touch with each other, but shortly after that, he died in a pretty mysterious automobile accident right. in, in, in England. Mm. But it's, it's and, and
0: and he was researching something very controversial at the time. Has to do with implants. On alleged abductees, as far as I've understood it, I, th- I think they even had samples. Okay. So yeah, the whole thing was like straight out of a mystery movie or something.
1: Yeah. But yeah, so you're you're right. Yeah, but e- even if even if you have even if you have yeah. tenure, you can still be attacked. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's harder. harder. So even, even a, a tenure, tenure, amazing. amazing. amazing.
0: Obvious thing, which is the knowledge filtration, the personal biases, the the prejudices, the ideology, the the. I mean, I can understand very easily if I'm convinced that the Darwinian, for instance, evolution theory is truth, fact, done. It's that that's it, and something comes and challenges that. Immediately, I'm prone to think that. That challenge has to be wrong. That's, I mean, that's a human nature thing. I, I bet it is. I, I guess creationists think the same thing. But here's the thing. And by the way, you're not very scientific when you let your personal biases do that because even me, I, I see myself, I have the same biases. And I have to check myself when I react sometimes to something because it goes against. Then I have to remind myself of keeping an open mind. At least read the thing before you spew off against it, right? So I am aware of my own biases. We
1: all have our biases. Of course, right?
0: But I've learned a very valuable lesson, and that is that if I'm right, I have no reason to fear. If if the position I take about something is in line with truth, I can afford challenges because the challenges are are opportunities to grey areas, whatever clarifications, etc. Yeah, and and that's a minimum of what you should expect from a person who works in science. But here's my question: if we can look. Beyond these personal limitations, wouldn't you say that there's still an an another degree of mechanism involved that's impersonal? That it's some kind of systemic filtration
1: going on too? Well, I think you're you're raising an important point, Alf. I respect the right of each individual to make up their minds about these topics or ab- ab- about my work. You know if, if somebody listens to me and uh, the, they're they're not persuaded and that's their individual judgment, mm. then I have to respect that. but what what often happens, however, is that it these things have a more as you said, a, a more systemic aspect to them where you get... Uh, say you have different groups of scientists and researchers who have different ideas and one of them becomes uh, the dominant say say the
0: uniformitarianism (laughs) yeah
1: you know the the, or for example the current Darwinian theory of evolution so yeah there's some who oppose it on different grounds on evidential grounds on religious grounds on whatever grounds Uh, And they're in a minority in the world of science. And those in the majority, what they do is they use government, either the education ministries or Mm. the courts, to enforce their view on everyone. Mm. And that's where I think the problem becomes uh, systemic. Where you have one group of scientists persuading government to give them an absolute monopoly in the education systems and scientific institutions, that becomes problematic, and and that Mm -hmm. does happen. Uh, i think the european union once they their council passed some resolution against opposition to darwinism you know i i i read some reports about that that so that that yeah. is, that is where i think it becomes very problematic where it becomes no longer a discussion among people discussing evidence and points of view and biases, but uh, those who are in a position to do so making use of government to impose their views on everyone in in countries that call themselves free and democratic – that's usually not allowed you know to say okay we can only have one political party in this country and every other political party is outlawed then nobody will want to become associated with any of those small parties you know, but it, it may be that in a parliament, there's a small party, a green party, or whatever. It's not going to control the government. But some people will vote for it because they like its ideas. Mm. <clears throat> and who knows? Maybe someday it will be part of the government or controlling the government even. But if you outlaw that small party, then nobody's going to want to be uh, associated with it. Good point. And so normally in democratic countries, we don't do things like that. We tolerate small parties that may have ideas that aren't held by the mainstream. As long as they're following the basic rules of the society, they're they're tolerated or religions – Uh, You could say in a country like the United States, there's uh, people, uh, a variety of religions. You could say, okay, we're a majority Christian country. Therefore, in the education system, in the history books, the only religion that could be mentioned is Christianity. Mm. You know, you could pass a law like that. It, it wouldn't be tolerated in a country that considers itself to be democratic or or free but in somehow in the world of science even though there's diversity of uh, opinion about questions yes maybe the majority of scientists do accept the current theories and paradigms all right so i would say uh give them most of the time in the schools give them most of the textbook pages but it should be acknowledged mm. In i believe in countries that are consider themselves to be free and democratic that it should be mentioned in the textbooks and in the classroom that although the majority of scientists now believe this there are others who take a different approach and here's yeah. who they are and what, and then let the students make up their own minds. Right, right. Yeah. At least, at
0: least at the level where this is a subject. One thing is primary schools and stuff like that.
1: Oh, that's but, something different.
0: Right? So, so, but this is, we, we, we're actually talking about people who are supposed to teach this field or, or research in this field. Even those people are kept away from. Such a basic fact, but it's interesting what you say because w- in Norway we practice it more or less like that. Right. And now I'm talking in, uh, not in specialized fields, but in, in primary education, in colleges and high schools and stuff. They give a certain amount of, let, let's say in religion, uh, I think half of it goes to Christianity because uh, of our uh, Christian uh, heritage. Sure. But then they also, have uh, I think it's proportional. I think they give a lot to, to the big religions and then some to this, even to the small religions. But even if that's a fair way to do it, there's another problem in that, which I've seen. And that is how you present it. For the longest time, I think it's cleaned up now, but for the longest time, they had the most infantile presentation of the other religions. Right. It's like, extremely biased the christian stuff was presented in the best possible light and the other stuff was presented like it was written by a christian priest or something like it's just a way oh they believe in sticks and stones right it's it's just uh, completely
1: no, th- the equivalent th- of that and in- terms of the topics that we're talking about, the alternative scientific ideas, yeah. you know, sometimes they are mentioned in the classroom, but they're only mentioned in a negative way. Today, exactly. today most scientists accept the theory of evolution, but there are a few crazy people, ignorant <laughs> fools, rascals. Yeah. Who, you know, so you're right. I think the alternatives have to be presented, I think, uh, proportionally.
0: Mm.
1: But in a more or less neutral and objective way, without the bias being allowed, mm. you know, to characterize them in a negative negative way. Exactly. So that that is what I would see as a a, a solution to the systemic problem, because. Mm. The next generation of scientists is going to be trained in the education system as you go through the different stages of it through your university work, your doctoral work, etc. But if you're getting trained in such a way that you're only exposed to that one point of view and you're taught to avoid everything else like the plague, Mm -hmm. then uh that creates a systemic problem i believe indeed that prevents the free exchange of ideas and just let each one survive if if an idea spreads and becomes accepted on the strength on its own strength well that's one thing if it's imposed by government and other ideas are artificially excluded that's another thing
0: yeah, then then it comes politicized, and that's you. You mention it uh, in relation to Darwinism, but we see it even clear more clear in the question of climate change. It's not even possible anymore to have an objective uh, stance to the question of anthropogenic uh, climate change. If as soon as you're not on board, fully on board with that your toast. And this is a direct result of politicizing the debate. When we leave to politicians who can't even solve basic problems like hunger and healthcare, <laughs> when we leave complex advanced matters to them, it's doomed to fail. Right. So... Uh, I, I'm not in favor of the, of the politicizing these things. Dr. Bauer, Henry Bauer, that you corresponded with, he, he suggests a science court of all things. Which I was initially very skeptical to, but when I heard the arguments and explanations, uh, I, I kind of thought it could have some merit. Because if we look at reality today, we see that you talked about proportionality. Yeah, it's proportional in that the majority accepts the status quo. So... That's why, uh, they can have the monopoly of what's being taught, but it's not proportional to the cases, to the facts. I mean, if they were going to give proportionality here, they should really, uh, relate it to the finds, the, the cases. Yeah. <laughs> then the anomalies would have a much better day.
1: You know, there was, uh, a German uh, philosopher of science and historian of science named Paul Feyerabend.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Have you ever heard of him? He wrote a book no. called Science and a Free Society. And right. he said, just like there should be separation between church and state, there should be separation between science and state. Yeah. In other words, and he thought there should be citizen review committees that would review things like this, Mm -hmm. that he thought it was not a good thing that a group of scientists that happens to be in the majority will convince the government to – promote its views only in the education system and use the tax money from all of the people to Mm. impose on them ideas they may not be inclined to accept. Mm. So separation of science and state Uh in addition to separation of church and state yeah, it might be a good idea.
0: Absolutely. I, I, that's actually a new concept for me, but it's so basic now that you say it. Paul, Man thinks would be better if, if we had a separation, huh?
1: Yeah. Paul and Science and a Free Society. It's a great book. Presumably he doesn't live anymore, or? No, he's no longer living. Yeah.
0: I would want to have him on the show. But moving on then, Michael... Um. Before we, I, I, oh, time is flying here, but I have a lot of questions. But let's let's go over to a little more light uh, area, maybe a little more fun to hear <laughs> in a in a black humor way, because I bet you can t- share with us examples from your experience where you've been censored.
1: Well, um, one time, yeah, you know, m- my books are translated into many different languages. One of them is Russian. Mm. So I've been to Russia several times. I've spoken at universities all over the country from Moscow to St. Petersburg to Vladivostok. Um, Once some professors invited me to lecture at the University of Tumain in Russia. It's in Siberia. It's a big, big town in Siberia. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I, I went to the university. Uh, a lecture had been scheduled because some professors had arranged it. Mm. But other professors in the university found out about the lecture. And they protested to the rector, you know, the president of the university, and convinced him to cancel the lecture. Wow. So, uh, the professors who invited me went to the local branch of the Russian Academy of Science, and they spoke to the director there. And he said, well, if they won't let him speak at the university, he can speak here. Hmm. So, they had... Uh, buses bring students and professors from the university to the Russian (laughs) Academy of Science building and the lecture went on there and Mm. the professors who invited me said more people came than would have come if the lecture had been held at the university because everybody was wondering what is this man going to say that's so dangerous you know that uh you know they've cancelled his lecture, mm. but it was really funny, even more funny or amusing if as the case may be, is that the next year I went back to the same university and I spoke in the biology department there about my work with no problem mm. I, I i guess they decided better just let him talk yeah, yeah, yeah. and let yes
0: yeah, because it's it's so childish let let's remove the physical geographical space where he's talking as if that will solve anything <laughs> uh, especially in this day and age but but on the other hand this was russia and maybe they have echoes of the physical censorship from the old days wow. but on the other hand my impression is that russian scientific community is more open to this than american
1: I've- I thought so. Yeah. I was I was invited to speak at the Russian Academy of Science, Department of Anthropology. Now, uh not everybody there liked what I had to say, but they listened, which I think is an important first step because mm. Mm. if ideas are going to change, the very first thing is that people have to be willing to listen to a new idea. Mm. So, uh at that at that meeting one Russian anthropologist said, and this is an example of, of what I call the knowledge filtering process, she said, I haven't read your book, but I'm sure that everything in it is a hoax, a mistake, <laughs> or an illusion, you know. Right. I I said, Better you would read the book first. <laughs> Uh, presumably they
0: think that you're the one who are out in the field finding all these anomalies they're not realizing this is actually mainstream cases
1: yes from the scientific literature of the past and present
0: and that's the brilliance of it because otherwise they could just try to dismiss the person or the find But but they can't do this here because then they have to dismiss all the uh accepted evidence too because it's the same kind of people who unearths it <laughs> so, yeah so that's one of the strengths I think in your approach that you're using uh the mainstream against them uh that's the effect I'm not saying that's the motivation but that's the effect of it now let's move on because uh, i I want to ask you just some random examples from your book because i my curiosity is peaked from the um headlines. Okay. So let's start with uh, chapter two in Forbidden Archaeologists that book. It's called The China Connections, Conspiracy, Archaeology and the Rockefeller Foundation Now, I'm wondering what Rockefeller Foundation has to do with this because one thing I know they have a lot of responsibility for lots of bad stuff So,
1: what have they done here? Well Early in the 20th century, there was a scientist named Davidson Black. He was originally from Canada, but he was interested in archaeology and anthropology. He had some ideas that the human species had first appeared in Asia. So he Mm -hmm. wanted to go there and do some research. Now, he was also a, a medical doctor. So, the Rockefeller Foundation had started the Peking Union Medical College. So he got a post at the Peking Union Medical College, which had been started by the Rockefeller Foundation in China. Now why did they do that? They wanted to transform Chinese society. You know, of course, the, the main Rockefeller uh, fortune came from the oil industry. Yeah. He started a huge company called Standard Oil, which was operating in China, selling oil mostly for uh, burning in the lamps. Mm. But it was a, a big market for them. But they wanted to transform a Chinese traditional society. Uh, by introducing Western materialistic scientific concepts in the field of medicine and biology. and you know, It was part of a whole plan they had to transform uh, traditional Chinese society. Okay. So Dr. Davidson Black was – uh, working as a medical doctor at that institute. But in his spare time, he wanted to do archaeological research. So there's a place near Beijing, or Peking as it was called at that time, called the Zhukutian Hills. And he was conducting some excavations there. And the uh, Rockefeller Foundation was funding those Excavations. Now, you could ask well, what interest does the Rockefeller Foundation have in conducting archaeological research? You know, they, Davidson Black was looking for uh, what's called a missing link you know some creature intermediate between ancient apes and monkeys and modern humans mm-hmm. he wanted to find in other words he wanted to find proof of the darwinian theory of evolution so the rockefeller foundation was funding his research and not only his research they had a whole program for funding research in biology and psychology and physics and cosmology and you know the president the head of this research programs said and what's the the common thread of all of this research said the aim of it all is to basically understand human nature so that we can establish beneficial control. Mm -hmm. In other words, there was a, a concerted attempt to fund scientific research in different fields, with the the goal of being able to understand and control human nature for beneficial purposes, but to the benefit of whom? Yeah, right. For whose benefit? You know, yeah, that's yeah. that's the question, and I think uh, so. That's what that. Uh, little article in Atlantis Rising is about, but I also discussed that whole topic of the Rockefeller Foundation's involvement in this uh, research that led to the discovery of what they call Beijing Man
0: Yeah, chapter 19 in My Science My Religion, right?
1: That in My Science My Religion it's there, it's also in forbidden archaeology different Hmm. aspects of, of that whole case The role of, uh, big foundations like the Rockefeller Foundation in pushing.
0: Yeah, hang on. Let me, let me read the
1: headline. Uh,
0: Chapter 19, Beijing Man and the Rockefeller Foundation, an episode in the globalization of science in the early 20th century. International Congress of History of Science, 2005. Globalization of science. That's a, that's a good expression. So what's the what's the case here? Well, I mean,
1: I think what's ultimately at stake here is the nature of our human species on this planet. Right. There are right. some most scientists today are pushing the idea that a human being is just a machine made of matter, a machine made of molecules. That's what we are. We're evolved apes. We're machines made of Mm. molecules. That's all there is to it. Now, if you define your identity, if you define your existence in a very materialistic way, then quite naturally your goals, your objectives, and your values are going to be extremely materialistic. You'll think that to work hard and produce and consume as many material things as possible is the main purpose of human life. And that Activity that focus on materialistic activity generates huge amounts of wealth because there are industries and governments that encourage this, get people producing and consuming more and more material things in competing groups. And there are huge financial and economic exactly. and political and cultural Industries and institutions that are organized on that basis.
0: And they obviously have a stake when it comes to people's paradigms. Because if we do not buy into this consumer biological robot theory, then we become a financial and political threat.
1: Absolutely. So I can Absolutely. see why, why they
0: have, right? So that's one reason they need to control this. And, and that I guess also touches uh, to another aspect of the systemic problem, namely that, you know, the skeptics, you probably heard this a million times. Oh yeah, but. Science works because you can always get, you know, you can peer review, you can get this published. Why aren't there other studies? And always when they, if if they resort to studies, they always do it if someone who has a vested interest has sponsored studies. They never look at the independent studies when it comes to this meta study phenomenon. Then they put in all the bad science That's, uh, that's more or less bought science. But if you look at independent science, that's a completely different matter. So what what you say to those who say, yeah, 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 but you can just, you know, you can peer review, you can get it published. What's the mechanistic problem there for someone who strays from the status quo?
1: Well, if all your peers have been (laughs) trained in an education system from which alternative ideas have been excluded... You know, by the government acting in concert mm. with uh, those who are in charge of the scientific establishment, you're you're not going to get, you're not going to be dealing with the complete set of facts that's really needed. So exactly. th- what I've been trying to do in my work is just provide the complete set of facts. And I'm prepared to let people make up their own minds about what that complete set of facts really means. But, you know, I think that's that's uh, important. And people have done, I mean, peer review, so-called peer review, is a topic that even within the scientific world and academic world is up for uh, discussion. There are a lot of flaws. Studies have shown.
0: Yeah, uh, they, they've sh- they've shown that you can even get bunk through, because they don't even read it. And another, another problem that rarely is touched upon is that who's in charge of these magazines? Who decides what articles to publish? Because you could send your stuff to to all of them. But it really boils down to who the gatekeepers is, doesn't it?
1: Yes, and yeah, you know, I'll say that. in In my work, I have been able to get some things published in that's amazing scientific journals. Yeah, because there are, I believe, as I was saying earlier, there are some open-minded scientist.
0: Yeah, let's call them sincere, because I, I I think that's the requisite of having an open mind, that's to be sincere.
1: Right. Yeah, like like once I presented at the European Association of Archaeologists meeting, Mm-hmm. a report on discoveries that were made in Portugal in the 19th century by a Portuguese geologist named Carlos Ribeiro. He had found human artifacts in layers of rock that belonged to uh, the Miocene period, which goes back about 20 million years. Wow. And as a professional geologist, he said there's no way those artifacts could have come into those layers through some fissure, or from some higher, more recent level. They belong mm. in the layers in which they were found, which were about 20 million years old. Mm. So I presented a paper at the conference, and you know, some Portuguese archaeologists heard about it, and they publish a journal of archaeology called the Journal of Iberian Archaeology, you know the archaeology of Spain and Portugal, right. and uh they published my report in that peer reviewed scientific journal, so sometimes you know you do find in this world of science that it's it's not monolithic, you know if mm-hmm. you look around, you can find. Uh, here and there, some scientists you you would call them sincere scientists, I think that's a good word who are willing to look at ideas and evidence that fall outside the boundaries of the dominant paradigms and their 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 disciplines, so you do encounter people like that in addition to those who are fundamentalist materialist and supporters of the current paradigm and don't want to hear anything else and, and yeah
0: we get the impression that they are the majority rule but when the status quo is presented like that obviously there will be a lot of people who just conform Uh, either of because they're smart enough to know that they have to do it for career reasons, or who just never... It's not in their nature to be deep, critical thinkers. They just go with the flow uh, or whatever. But if you... And this is completely without any scientific value, this question, but just from your anecdotal impression in the field. How many would you estimate are open to this if this would be both the second and the third type of person but you could also add some from the first type because I think there's a lot of people who secretly harbour either doubt or they are actually even aware but they don't dare speak out so how how many do you think and I'm not saying how many 100% agrees with you but how many do you think detrail from the status quo just in general if you could give a percentage or something
1: I think quite a few mm. 15 20% even because wow. i think it's it's not a very stable position you know that you know the mainstream group is in because gallup surveys have been done about the beliefs of the people in general and there are huge percentages of people who accept things that are rejected by mainstream science mm. whether we're talking about uh, or or who reject things that are accepted by mainstream science.
0: Okay, you see that politically too.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's the, there are a huge percentage of people who accept the existence of UFOs and aliens who have had yeah. paranormal experiences of one kind or of another or who have big questions about yep. you know, the theory of evolution. Huge numbers of people don't accept these ideas or they accept things that are rejected by mainstream science. But have they pulled uh, scientists, academicians? Yeah, as you go higher and higher up in uh, the academic world, you become more and more materialistic or atheistic.
0: Not not in every field. Uh, I, I I see that in hard sciences. It's opposite. If you're a top man in, in quantum physics or mathematics or whatever, then they tend to have a very intelligent paradigm like Taoism or... Tantra or Pythagoras or whatever, you know what I mean? It's it's like well, it is
1: ch- it is changing.
0: But I see that in the middle schools, you know, in the middle education system, that's where you have their minions, their hordes of materialists. But I guess it's different when it comes to your field, archaeology. There, I'm pretty sure. The bosses are married to materialism.
1: Well, it's it's very it's a very interesting situation among archaeologists. I divide them into two groups: mm-hmm. the archaeology singular group mm-hmm. and the archaeologies plural group. The members of the archaeology group believe there is one objective. Scientific field of archaeology that is strictly fact-based, and uh, it's all been worked out. You know, the the idea, basic ideas are there. We may have to clean up a a few of the loose ends, but basically we've got it. (laughs) And they don't want to hear anything else. And but then, and it's kind of like a Western scientific, objective, materialist. Group, Mm. and they think there's one science of archaeology, that's it. Mm. There's uh, another group which is very influential in the world of archaeology that I call the Archaeologies group, and they understand that their discipline was used during the colonial period to suppress the worldviews of other people in different parts of the world, Asia, Africa, the Middle East, whatever, the the Americas. So they understand, you know, there can be different archaeologies. There could be an Australian Aboriginal archaeology. There can be a... Pacific Islander archaeology and North American Indian ar- there, 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 yeah. there could, in other words, archaeology could be carried out according to different metaphysical conceptions. Right, And they're actually quite an influential group in archaeology. There's one organization of archaeologists, the World Archaeological Congress, which is more or less in that camp. And you're a member that right? Yes. Mm. And their professional journal is called Archaeologies. So they're open to different perspectives on archaeology and and, and they're quite Numerous as well. I'm not saying they all agree with or approve of what I'm doing, but they're open to it. They're Mm. willing to include it in the discourse of archaeology. That's the point. They're open to the data. Yeah, Mm. they're willing to consider things.
0: Mm.
1: So... So this so, hope. So I, I guess it depends upon which field and which discipline we're in. Yeah. But I, I would say in archaeology and anthropology there are substantial numbers of archaeologists and anthropologists who are open to diverse to some diversity of opinion, even about fundamental questions in mm in their their disciplines and they're willing to make room within their disciplines for this variety of perspectives.
0: Yeah, because we see now, of course, uh, there's been some developments in that field when it comes to Darwin and Wallace. Okay. I, I don't know how updated you are but you probably know that it's more or less proven now that Darwin cut some corners and engaged in some fraud, just like Sigmund Freud, actually. Both Freud and Darwin has been revealed to use, let's say, very poor scientific methods in some of their work, and Wallace has been really underestimated. you have any comment to this?
1: Uh yes Alfred Russell Wallace was an English naturalist you know a scientist a biologist and he was a contemporary of Darwin's a little bit younger I mean Darwin had gone out Sailing around the world on the ship Beagle. And during that voyage around the world, he had gathered a lot of the evidence that later led him to uh, develop his theory of evolution. But when he went back to England, he was writing a book you know the origin of species and he kept writing it and writing it he never published it i am kind of sympathetic to darwin in that regard because i'm also kind of like that i'm a little slow <laughs> to come out with things right but uh but one day he got in the mail uh, a package from alfred russell wallace this younger english scientist and in that Package, there was a paper that Wallace was going to present at a meeting of a scientific society in London mm. uh, called the Linnaean Society, after this, uh, Carl Linnaeus, who came up with the species system species naming system that we use in science today so he got this so darwin got this letter from wallace and that paper outlined the theory of evolution by natural selection and darwin was shocked Because he'd been working on his theory for 20 years or so Mm. and delaying publication, delaying, delaying. And now this other scientist, Wallace, was coming out with the same idea and was going to publish it, present a paper on it at this scientific society in London. And the system in science is the first scientist who announces a theory gets his name on it yeah. gets the credit for mm. it so darwin was just shocked you know so he called together his scientific friends and consulted with them about what 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 can i do and they told him the only thing you could do is propose to wallace that you both present papers about your theory at this meeting of this scientific society in London. And that way, because you've both presented it at the same time, you'll both get the credit for it. Mm-hmm. So Wallace agreed to that, and that's what happened. And for a long time, the theory of evolution was called the Wallace-Darwin theory. And you could ask, well, why isn't it called the Wallace-Darwin theory today? And that's because after afterwards... Wallace became involved in research into the paranormal, Exactly, and he became convinced that the process of evolution is guided by some higher intelligence, and he came to
0: accept… Yeah, wouldn't we call him today maybe
1: intelligent designer? something like that something like that something like that mm-hmm. but he 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 became involved in, and Darwin was really upset with him and said you know by getting into these things you're going to murder our child you know the theory of evolution which he wanted to remain strictly materialistic unguided which
0: is weird considering he was a christian
1: yeah well, I don't know how – I mean, there's some debate about how oh, okay. mm. good of a Christian or how much of a Christian he was. Mm. But uh, so Wallace got pushed out of the picture.
0: And now he's he's racing back to old glory because uh, there's been some revelations of late regarding
1: Well, i Well, I'm a big Wallace. fan. I'm a big fan of Wallace and his work – yeah, me too. Hey, time is running
0: out. Can you afford a, a question or two more?
1: Uh, okay. One or two more. Yeah.
0: Okay. So I see here, maybe it's related. Uh, you have a chapter called In the Depths of Antiquity, Fra- Fraud and Suppression of Information in Archaeology. This is a chapter in your book, Forbidden Archaeologists. What does that touch?
1: Well, that, that tells about some cases of fraud in archaeology. You know, Antiquity is the main scientific journal of archaeology. You know, it's Mm -hmm. considered to be one of the more prestigious journals. So, uh, you know, I've met the editors. I've actually had a, a paper published in Antiquity one time. But they, the editor at the time I wrote this article, was uh, Simon Stoddard, and he had an assistant named Caroline Malone. And, you know, they were uh, writing an editorial for Antiquity. It was published in Antiquity, and they were talking about something that's happened in the Middle East, namely that uh, different uh, terrorist groups have been blowing up had been blowing up archaeological monuments and you know they thought that was not very good that evidence would be destroyed like that and they yeah, were Yeah these Buddha statues right Yeah the Buddha statues mm. and but they commented at the end of their editorial that there's another kind of archaeological destruction that goes on among the archaeologists themselves. Namely, they'll find stuff, they'll put it in a museum, and then they just won't publish anything about it. Exactly. You know, so that in the storerooms of museums, there's just all this stuff sitting there that may be relevant, but we just never hear about it because they they dig it up, they Put it away, and then they never say anything about it. So that's uh, you know a, a kind of destruction or fraud that goes on in archaeology. But there are cases of archaeologists actually manufacturing evidence, and they were they reported on. Uh, the editors of Antiquity uh, commented about the case of a Japanese archaeologist. His name was uh, Dr. Fujimara. And he had actually been caught planting artifacts in his own excavation so that he could say, oh, look what I found here.
0: Yeah. Hmm.
1: proof. You know, so he planted artifacts in a, a site, which he was advertising as the oldest site in Japan. So he had actually engaged in deliberate fraud you know, as a professional archaeologist
0: uh, yeah to to make it older or younger
1: uh he was trying to say these things were the oldest site in Japan,
0: so he was working for the status quo,
1: oh yeah, he was but you know in his he was working within the status quo. But he was. Yeah, but uh,
0: hang on. My point is, when people imagine fraud in science, they imagine there's someone who wants to prove the anomaly. But I'm guessing your point is because I know this goes on, ha- have gone on that mainstream proponents go to the length of fabricating evidence in order to, you know, like create a fake missing link or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. So was he a proponent for the mainstream or for the anomaly?
1: No, he was a mainstream archaeologist working within the dominant paradigm just trying to right to make a name for himself right. within within that system. So, I mean, the point would be, like you were mentioning a little bit earlier, one one reaction to the anomalies is to say, "Oh, it's a hoax or a fraud, or without any proof, without any proof—that's yeah. that's one way to dismiss something. I remember once uh, yeah, I was actually in Copenhagen, København. I was giving a lecture about forbidden archaeology, and an archaeology professor from the University of Copenhagen came and was listening. And after the talk, he said. You know, I, I had given many examples of cases of discoveries of human bones, human artifacts, many millions of years old, found in excavations by professional scientists, mm. and his reaction w- was to. St- to just just start listing all kinds of possibilities, how the evidence could be wrong. It could have been a mistake, it could have been it could have slipped down the artifact could have slipped down from some higher, more recent level. There could have been earth movements, and I said to him, You know it's possible you could be a holographic projection from Mars programmed to say these things' <laughs> My point to him was, if you're going to proceed in a scientific way, you can't just start raising all kinds of possible ways in which the discovery could be dismissed. Exactly. You actually have to show, if you want to say the object slipped down through a fissure, well, then you would have to show at that particular location there was a fissure going from the top level down to the bottom level. And you'd have to show that on that top level there were artifacts of the kind that were found in the lower level. That I, I mean, that's how you would proceed scientifically. You can't just... St- i mean that's a kind of scientific fraud and cheating right there right. to put out undocumented unproved accusations or suspicions of fraud in order to reject you know evidence that you don't like because if you're going to yeah. If you're going to proceed in that way, you could say the same thing about the evidence that supports exactly. your
0: theory. No, but they have no choice because they are desperate. The data doesn't uh, support their worldview. So the scientist goes out the window and they become like anyone else when they're hard-pressed for answers, grasping at speculation, at uh, hypotheses, <laughs> <laughs> trying desperate. In a way, I think it's a good sign because a, the guy listened. Obviously he listened to you. B, you had an impact. He wouldn't be desperately trying to convince himself like this if you didn't make a crack in his paradigm there and then.
1: Well, that, that's what I'm hoping to do. Mm. Make some cracks in the paradigm. You know what
0: Leonard Cohen said, right? There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. <laughs>
1: <laughs> nice. Hey,
0: before we part, um, I have another question, and and I oh I want to comment too quickly. What you said there about how they you know stuff away things that are going against the mainstream—that's such a huge problem because it becomes a. What you would call, I guess, a re- reciprocal effect, because if it happens just once, that's what they think, right? Oh, look at this. This has no place anywhere. We can't explain it. St- uh, put it away. Now, if that happens everywhere, nobody ever gets to hear about these things. That's and right. so maybe every museum, every institution has... A loft has a, uh, like a Indiana Jones storage room facility where all this stuff is happening. So, and then we have to have someone like you who just sweeps through all this data, gathering it, trying to make it available for the people who come now i have the my last question is about this i mean it's probably a very lonely work although more and more people knows about this and you're getting more and more attraction but how many people do you think today in the world are other forbidden archaeologists do you know anyone other than yourself who works
1: in this field like this uh, there are you know it's a, a big field there are Many who are working on, I, on here, let me say this another way mm-hmm. you know, alternative or forbidden archaeologies like a big field. I tend to deal with. The deep antiquity of the human species, you know, with evidence showing a human presence going back tens of millions or even hundreds of millions of years, that's kind of the the main focus of my work. There are, Researchers who deal with the more recent end of the spectrum uh, yeah the the dominant theory today about say the origin of civilization is that it began about ten thousand years ago in what they call the Neolithic revolution, where the hunters and gatherers. Uh, first started living in small villages and developing social organization and architecture and things like that. So some researchers are focused on pushing that back. Yeah, you know, to fifteen thousand to twenty thousand, twenty five thousand years, and so on. And there you've got researchers like Robert Bavall and Graham Hancock and Robert Schock. Yeah, and- but yeah, but but all,
0: all of those people, well not shock, but most of those people you mentioned there are uh, either exiles from the mainstream or they are smart enough never to go into oh, it. But you know do anyone? you mean
1: people in the mainstream who are changing their eyes? Yeah who's looked trapped in a system. I think yeah. that is very difficult for them to do. I mean, I get letters from students in archaeology quite regularly who you know, have become interested in my work. Like one example was I got a letter from a, an archaeology student who told me, you know, I was on a dig with my professor and I just happened to mention to him that maybe humans have been around for longer than we now think possible. <laughs> and the professor said, I have a book you should read. And the professor gave him, gave the student his personal copy of Forbidden Archaeology.
0: Wow. I didn't see that one called. You me. know,
1: so… Sometimes what happens in a situation like this is ideas circulate underground. Exactly. Even among people who are part of you know the establishment, they yeah. keep it. So this professor, somehow or other, he'd gotten the book, he'd read it, he kept it. And when a student just said something that, yeah. Kind of indicated that, well, he showed the student the book. Right. Smart guy. So I I think, I mean, it's one reason I don't think I would, if I were part of the mainstream system, if I were depending for my salary, you know, on some mainstream scientific or educational institution, mm. I wouldn't be able to do what I do. No. So I think it's a little, I I think there are people within those disciplines who are pushing things as far as they can, Mm. but I don't think they could come out with ideas of the kind that I'm expressing and survive in that environment.
0: No, no, but we see from the list of correspondence you've had with uh, people in the field, I I just mentioned a few, but there's over 60 people here, many of them are. Established doctors. So, uh, not having read this, how many of these were positive, and how many of these were negative?
1: Well, you yeah, know, there are a variety of of people, you know, in all different fields. So it's hard to put a, a number on it. But what I wanted to do by presenting all of this, the, the this correspondence, the reviews, my mm. replies to the reviews, was to give people some sense of the diversity of opinions that are actually out there right. and show right. that it is possible. It, it is possible to make some actual waves in the world of science. Even if you're coming from some point of view that is really outside the mainstream, you can make some waves in the mainstream circles. And this is kind of some proof of it.
0: Right. Um one thing is the childish gut reactions that you got but did any of them engage you objectively respectfully seriously with a focus on the data and and maybe they didn't de- agree with you even but try to engage in a rational fact-based
1: conversation about these things uh sometimes but sometimes okay. it's also mixed with the other attitude right, right. you know right but in my correspondence with some of the scientists who reviewed the book forbidden archaeology in scientific journals we do get into discussion of, of the evidence and sometimes in the reviews they make some they try to engage a little bit with the evidence but i've tried to show them what uh, mistakes they've made in evaluating the evidence that's been presented but you know, to get into the details of that we'd have to go through you know the correspondence
0: yeah sure sure but uh, it's heartening to know that uh you know it's not just condemnation and and that you know, some of them try to meet you in the field. Well, that's what it's all about, right? The it's not about persons or beliefs. It's supposed to be about the data, absolutely. And we we like it when we see that. There's even skeptics who can do that because. You know, where are we going if everybody just takes an emotional, biased standpoint and then war about their opinions <laughs> instead of looking at the facts? that's that's very pessimistic uh, d- development well, yeah. so it's it's good. there's hope if young people grow up being more open to this, if there's people in the field who secretly, Entertain this notion and some even dare discuss it.
1: And sometimes they hear me speaking about these things at their scientific conferences. And you know, they don't have to accept my proposals to speak at these conferences of archaeologists, but they do. Mm. And sometimes they even publish them in in their professional literature. And I'm often invited to speak at universities. So there are there are scientists who are willing to listen to new ideas. I could give you one example mm-hmm. of uh, a scientist who I think I was able to influence in some way and, and that was uh Dr David Deming who was a geologist at the University of Oklahoma in Norman he once invited me to speak about my book Forbidden Archaeology at the Geology School of the University of Oklahoma and it's a, a very big school very big and impressive school in, the, mm-hmm. in at that at that university so my audience was <clears throat> you know, about a 100 graduate students of geology and geology professors. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I, I spoke about forbidden archaeology, and I mentioned a case that had come to my attention from Oklahoma. There was uh, a place called Frederick Oklahoma, where a man named uh, Holloman, Mr. Holloman, had a quarry. And in the 1920s, some excavations were conducted there and they found uh, stone spearheads and arrowheads in some very ancient layers of rock, millions of years old. And the the discoveries at the time in the 1920s attracted some interest among scientists. They were very controversial and were rejected by the mainstream. So Dr. Deming became interested in that case Hmm. and he began researching it and he accepts the, the extreme antiquity of the human artifacts that were found there, they're at least 2 million years old, which is really extraordinary because you know, mainstream science thinks that humans capable of making projectile points like spearheads are less than 200,000 years old anywhere in the world, what to speak of being present in uh, North America. So I think that may be a case of what you were talking about, a a scientist in the mainstream who became a kind of forbidden archaeology researcher. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's great.
0: I guess when they're faced to the overwhelming data that they have to revisit some of their... Notions. Uh, at least I hope so. I hope that's the case with most of them. It's just a question of getting exp- getting this exposed. Yeah. And uh, I hope today's show will contribute to that. We're we at overtime, Michael. So,
1: yeah, uh, I think I'm going to have to sign off now. Yeah.
0: So uh, I'm, just I'm just left, left to thank you thanking you yet again yet. For, for coming on the show. Uh,
1: and I, I hope, hope to get, to get you, you back, back, back when
0: you get actually. your new book out. That,
1: that would, be would be wonderful. wonderful.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, let's so let's stay in, stay in touch. touch. So thanks, thanks a, lot. a lot. Okay, okay I'll thank, you thank you very, you very much. Much, 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 much. That's it for today. Thanks again to Dr. Cremo for sharing with us his perspective and experience. A quick nag, and I'm going to quote you some wonderful lines of Wallace. Remember to subscribe, very very important, if you want to support us. And even if you subscribe, make sure that you've clicked on the bell. They've introduced this bell thing, which is really what's regulating your possibility of seeing our updates. It's very important. Like so many others in the independent media, we are getting demonetized too and and even losing some exposure on several so-called controversial videos. I guess we can kind of measure the degree of truth exposition compared to how censored it is. But at any rate, click that bell and make sure you, it's marked for getting all updates. Otherwise, if you have not activated that bell, even though you may be a subscriber, you may not get updates from us. And some even experience that they are unsubscribed. So check that you're subscribed, check that you clicked for the bell and check also that you subscribe to our Shorts channel. You'll find the link in the landing page in the main index page of our YouTube channel. And of course, share our shows with the world on all social media, on your website, whatever. You know, you know the rap already, so that's the best way to counter the suppression. Now, if you're a first-time listener, by all means, I'll not implore you to subscribe because if you like this episode, it may be a one-time phenomenon. But if you have listened to us two times or more and you're not subscribed, (laughs) what the deuce are you waiting for? You know you're going to come back anyway. Might as well be in the loop and support us at the same time. And best of all, it doesn't cost you a dime. Neither does watching their ads, mind you. Though some of them can be boring, it pays for your listening pleasure. Now I promised you Wallace, and that's what you're going to get. Brilliant guy, we're going to cover him later in other programs, he said. Our mastery over the forces of nature has led to a rapid growth of population and a vast accumulation of wealth. But these have brought with them such an amount of poverty and crime and have fostered the growth of so much sordid feeling and so many fierce passions that it may well be questioned whether the mental and moral status of our population has not on the average been lowered and whether the evil has not overbalanced the good. It is indisputably the mediocre, if not the low, both as regards morality and intelligence, who succeed in life and multiply the fastest. But naturalists are now beginning to look beyond this and to see that there must be some other additional principle regulating the infinitely varied forms of animal life. To expect the world to receive a new truth or even an old truth, without challenging it, is to look for one of those miracles which do not occur. Modification of form is admitted to be a matter of time. To say that mind is a product of function or protoplasm or of its molecular changes is to use words to which we can attach no clear conception. There is, I conceive, no contradiction in believing that mind is at once the cause of matter and of the development of individualized human minds through the agency of matter. On the spiritual theory, man consists essentially of a spiritual nature or mind intimately associated with a spiritual body or soul, both of which are developed in and by means of a material organism. The foregoing considerations lead us to the very important conclusion that matter is essentially force and nothing but force. That matter as popularly understood does not exist and is in fact philosophically inconceivable. If this is not done, Future ages will certainly look back upon us as a people so immersed in the pursuit of wealth as to be blind to higher considerations. Thus far, Alfred Russell Wallace, thank you for supporting us all through 2017. In return, we will do our best to increase production for 2018. Meanwhile, I remain your sincere host, Al. Thanks to our patrons and our team of volunteers. Be seeing seeing you.
1: One.